Amen. Fathers, we have just sung the very ground for our meeting here today, the very thing we have in common with other believers, the very reason for making our pilgrimage to this place, for echoing these praises forth unto you, for diligently studying and seeking out the treasures in your word. We confess all hinges upon that moment in redemption's history when our Savior hung on the cross in our stead. There is no hope for salvation without the shed blood and broken body of the perfect, sinless Savior, Lamb of God. To His name we sing praises this day because He is worthy, because His Spirit has entered into us, indwelling us, changing our hearts, leading us to uh, confession of sin, repentance and faith, and walking in truth, and the desire to proclaim now your glories to world yet lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. The rugged cross, our salvation, is responsible for our entire life direction, the course of our future, our eternal security and salvation and hope beyond the grave hinges upon the work of Jesus Christ. The fellowship and meaning that we have with one another all is established in the work that he has done, fitting us like living stones in his mighty work, building his church, establishing for us a future and a forever on the pray, to the praise of his great name, on the ground of his shed blood on Calvary. We rejoice in what our Savior has done today. Now, as we turn to your holy word, which contains within its pages, its promises, its commands, its precepts, its poetry, its narrative, its prophecy, its apocalyptic language, its gospel, its record of the history of the hope of all mankind, I pray that we would find there, Lord, amazing and brilliant reasons to praise you all the more. As we see Christ revealed from ages past, demonstrated in type, for instance, Melchizedek, who shines forth from the page with the glory of one who prefigured the son, the king, the priest to come. And as we turn to the covenant record with your uh, son, Abram, called forth from Ur and Haran, from the world and from paganism, unto the establishment of a kingdom and a people and a hope and a lineage that would show forth the message of light and salvation to all nations, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to appreciate all the more the history, the record, the pedigree, and the glories of our great salvation in Jesus Christ. We lift up ourselves and our minds unto you as a living sacrifice and pray that you would speak in and through your word and its proclamation this day, even as you have ministered to us in these songs, reminding us of our great salvation. We pray that all of this would be to the praise of your great name that your people might shine all the brighter and light of your revealed truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. The morning, this morning, it's our great honor and privilege to turn to the Holy Scriptures. And I pray that you would do so with me today, turning to Genesis 15, in that heart of reverence and joy. As we continue in our Genesis series to see the covenant promises to Abraham unfolding another page, another chapter. The title of this morning's message could be two. I had two working titles. One is Covenant and Faith, and the other is Abram's Righteousness. The aim of this morning's message is to expound the relationship between covenant and faith. Covenant, of course, being the relational arrangement that God has established with man that's patterned after relationship arrangements of old, but exceeds them infinitely so in its binding power 
in its meaning and in its hope. And faith, meaning that essential change that takes place in the heart of a believer, that sovereign gift by the Holy Spirit that causes the basis of our assurance to move from ourselves or from an idol or from some other idea or philosophy, all of which is idolatrous in fact, unto the object of only of the only faith that is a legitimate faith at all, and that is the hope of a Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What is the relationship between Abraham's hope and the covenant that God made with him? We see answers to that question unfolding in our text today as we consider Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Would you stand with me again out of reverence for God's holy word and let us read this passage or listen as this passage is proclaimed in your hearing today. Here is the holy word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house hold will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, if you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Genesis 15 figures prominently and dramatically in the record of unfolding covenant revelation. Again, prominently and dramatically, this chapter figures into the history of the revealing of God's covenant arrangement between himself and a called forth and elect people. Genesis 15, the first portion of which we read, is leading up to an event that is absolutely stunning and striking. This event we will cover in detail later, but it includes verses 7 through 21. Therefore, the chapter is divided pretty uh, distinctly in two parts. The first part is Abraham's interaction with the Lord in verses 1 through 6, which we just read. And the second part is God's ratification of covenant in verses 7 through 21 which is indeed significant. Thus, this is an important chapter, not only in the book of Genesis, not only in the story of Abraham, but in all of the history of the Scripture. There are three major elements revealed over the course of Abram's life tied to covenant. So remember these, they're in your notes if you have a copy in that first paragraph. In Genesis 12, the covenant promises involving salvation's history are in the category, categories of seed, land, and nations. So these are three major elements that carry with them uh, in a significance as to the terms of the covenant. There's a seed element to the covenant, that would be Abram's future lineage. There's a land element, that would be the promised land of which Abram's future generations would lay claim. And there's the nations element, 
which is the promise and publication of the gospel to all nations as a light over time. So these three are specified and disclosed from the opening chapters of the covenant to Abram, and we find this in Genesis 12, which we've covered already. So that would be covenant specified and disclosed, but now another chapter of covenant history opens in Genesis 15, and this, if you will, is covenant ratified. That's our chapter under consideration now. This is where the ceremony in the second portion of the chapter underscores with more uh, dramatic significance up to this point than any time preceding it. This covenant is a serious arrangement that God swears an oath to with his servant Abram, Abram, and through Abram, all who can legitimately say they are of his lineage. Thus, we have covenant disclosed, Genesis 12, covenant ratified, Genesis 15, and later in the course of Genesis, we have in chapter 17, a covenant sign. This would be circumcision, most particularly in the case of the Abrahamic covenant. And this will be established to accompany the plan of succession or to accompany the succession, that means continuing reality and continuing assurance of the Abrahamic promises through the generations until such time as its fulfillment occurs in Christ. So in all aspects of covenant arrangement, it's important to note the Word of God, the Word of God Himself proves absolutely central. What is the most important element of these covenants? Is it the seed? Is it the land? Is it the nations? The most important element and the theme that ties them all together, the absolute bedrock, assurance, and proof positive, the ground, the foundation, the absolutely central in the covenant is the Word of God. And we see this coming to the fore over and over again. The Word of God is once again featured in our text. It is the Word of God that reveals His arrangement, His covenant terms, His terms of relationship with His elect, with His called out ones in the lineage of Abram, soon to be Abraham. In this arrangement, this covenant interaction, the Lord assumes the role of the greater king. In historical Mideast terms, this would be the suzerain. That's a term that refers historically to the greater king. And there's a lesser king typically in a covenant arrangement, such as the pattern we have in our text today and in 12 and 17, and that would be the vassal or the servant. The Lord is the greater king. Yahweh is the suzerain. Abram and his lineage are the vassals, the lesser king, the servants. And as a sovereign party, Yahweh, the Lord, dictates the terms and sets the parameters for his relationship with Abram and his family line. It's important to recognize with each chapter of covenant progress, Abram, Abram, Abraham is the recipient. He is the one who is receiving these things, not establishing them. He ultimately is the passive, if you will, beneficiary. That doesn't mean he is not called to action. He certainly is. That doesn't mean there as, uh, that there is a responsibility that is on his shoulders to act in accordance with what's going on. It's just to say that ultimately speaking, the power that is established and the glories that are revealed have nothing to do with Abraham. It is not the genius, ambition, the works, 
or the renown of this man, Abram, that is establishing the future hope, not even in part. And that becomes the biblical message of this passage all the way through to the apostolic teaching of Romans 4 and other places. Abram is a man of faith, yet in each stage of God's interaction with them, he demonstrates righteousness by believing in God's Word. He doesn't demonstrate his righteousness by his own accord, but instead by faith in another. Paul would later speak of faith itself as a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. As such, Abram's boasting was only in the Lord. And if you are a saint in this room, if you have demonstrated your faith in accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, as your covenant hope, so your boasting is also only in the Lord. May we join in his confession, Abram's confession of faith, and his heart of worship upon recognizing the majesty and the condescension, which means stooping low, to make himself tangible, interacting with us as lowly sinners. May we recognize and confess the faith of Abraham and his heart of of worship upon realizing the majesty and condescension of our God, evident evident in Genesis 15, in this chapter of redemptive history. So as we do so, that is, as we consider the glory of our Lord and His condescension, His souping low in this chapter, let us take a closer look at verses 1 through 6 under this heading. Abram's faith tested and featured in the context of three uh, things specifically. Number one, grace thus far. Abraham's faith is tested and featured in the context of grace thus far. And particularly, this will be the reference to the Melchizedek interaction of Genesis 14 that we've covered in prior weeks. Secondly, time and suffering. Abram's faith tested and featured in the context of time and suffering. And thirdly, the Word of God. Abram's faith tested and featured in the context of the Word of God. First of all, grace thus far. Notice in chapter 15, verse 1, the first phrase, after these things. That's a linking phrase meant uh, to connect the reader to the events have gone before. What What events have happened thus far? Well, as you recall, in verse 17, after his return, Abrams, from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, and then we have the king, we have this arrangement or this scenario. The king of Sodom, Abram, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, meeting in Sheva, the king's valley. What happens? Melchizedek blesses Abram. He says in verse 19, Blessed be Abram, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Before this, he had brought out a feast of bread and wine, in verse 18. And with re- the text has reference to this individual, this mysterious singular figure, that he was not just a king, but also priest of God most high. The blessing continues, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies, Melchizedek declares of Abraham, into your hand. You remember the rest, Abram grants him a tenth, paying homage to this individual by tithing to him. Meanwhile, the king of Sodom is refused and his offering is rejected. Those who are with Abram receive this great blessing. Abram has proved victorious in this incident over the Mesopotamian kings, the Keterlamer coalition, if you will, of the north. Abraham's faith is tested and featured, therefore, in the context of grace thus far. After these things, in other words, consider the grace that is upon Abraham's life up until this point. 
even events that immediately precede these things. And as you take that into, con- into the context, it helps grant weight to chapter 15 in the intent of these words. After these things, 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. This is what God says. Again, verse 1 continues, quote, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. This transition and linking phrase reminds us that this covenant ratification incident is initiated on the heels of the Melchizedek meeting, and this is by design. So as we remember that successful battle campaign and the blessing of the priest king and the rejection of Sodom's bounty, we have God appearing to Abram in this vision now, having just come to Abram by type. So we recognize that Melchizedek was a type of a priest king to come, namely Jesus. So this was a revelatory event. The Messiah to come was revealed by type in Melchizedek. But now we have further revelation by way of vision. The Lord came to Abram not just by type in Melchizedek, verse four, chapter 14, but He came to Abram in a vision and with His direct word, namely, fear not, and so forth, in chapter 15. So here we have a continuing record of the unfolding revelation of God's Word with respect to the relationship between covenant and faith. God showing Abram the significance of his relationship with him and its terms. First of all, God says, fear not. Think of this in context of these recent events. In other words, just as you were protected, Abram, in battle against the Keterlamer Confederacy, aided by your instruments of war, shield and sword, let's say, and through that campaign secured the spoils of war, so I will secure shield and supply great reward through your coming son, the promises of my covenant to you. Do you see the context and the connection? The Lord had given Abram the spoils of war and the triumph of victory over his enemies in chapter 14. And the Lord draws on this experience to encourage Abram in his faith and say, fear not. You see, you had no reason to fear those four kings from the north, though you were presumably greatly outnumbered. Likewise, you have nothing to fear that my future promises aren't just as secure as your victory over the Mesopotamian kings in this great battle. What would Abram's fear have been? Well, it seems in the text that age and temporal limitations would threaten to derail the fulfillment of the promises. O Lord God, he cries in verse 2, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So Abraham's fear in part could be described, let's say, as recognizing that the temporal limitations, the fact that he is aged, he's growing old, and so is his wife, that this would stand in the way, it would derail the fulfillment of the promises. But the Lord is saying, consider grace thus far. The same power that granted you victory in this battle campaign to set Lot, your nephew and his property and family free, from these great kings of the north, to overcome them with just 318 fighting men. That same grace that gave you victory in that battle is the same grace 
that will carry you through your next trial. Consider grace thus far. Thus waiting or while waiting for answers in one area of life and prayer, by application we can draw faith and reassurance considering our Lord's faithfulness in another area. And this uh, note this phrase, fear not, also occurs throughout Scripture. In other words, when the Lord speaks to us through His Word, fear not, He will often make an appeal to His grace in our lives thus far. Can we relate to this? Is there application for us? Certainly. If I asked you to tell me evidence of God's faithfulness to you, if you could give me a record in your experience of how God has answered prayers, moved heaven and earth, miraculously intervened, supernaturally come to you with answers to your plight, let's say even in salvation itself, and I listened, I would mark in my notebook as I took notes of your experience, reason for faith for what you may be praying for, promises that are yet outstanding. Fear not, the same God who delivered your soul from hell and reassured you of that salvation When you became born again, that same Lord who has granted you grace thus far will overcome and prove faithful in things that you are praying for now, promises yet outstanding. We have not embraced our heavenly reward as of yet. We have not seen this peace on earth that is promised yet in the new Jerusalem. We live in a society, in an environment, sometimes individually, personally, sometimes nationally, collectively, which seems chaotic, that has lost its moorings, that seems dangerous, that seems like an absolute quagmire of difficulty with every reason to fear. But if we look at those factors and not at grace thus far, we will be distracted from the reassuring foundation of our hope uh, from, on the heart level, the hope that we should entertain in our heart moving forward, that if God has been faithful to us thus far, we need not fear the future. Thus, Abram's faith is tested and featured in the context of considering what God has done. Remember the victory campaign that was waged and the spoils of war, the reward, if you will, of your battle against Keterlamer, and now have faith that the reward promised you in the covenant will also come to pass. Remember how the Lord protected you, and you and your men escaped that battle unscathed, how He was your shield, how He was your guard in that exchange, in that conflict. And now, remember that the Lord will protect you against the enemy, even age itself, and of your beloved bride, against the enemy that you would consider standing in the way of the fulfillment of my promises moving forward. Consider grace thus far and fear not. What is the significance of the Lord identifying himself as Abram's shield? Fear not, Abram. Do not fear because I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Consider that phrase, I am your shield. Now, in the original language, there's a shared Hebrew word, word, as I understand it, between a, a term and a verse that has gone before 14.20 and this verse 15.1. In 1420, Melchizedek has declared over Abraham, Blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And that word delivered is the same Hebrew word, word as 15.1, Fear not, I am your shield. 
there is a relationship between delivered and shield. And this is not by accident. In other words, there's a tie-in to this prior event, this grace thus far, that reminds Abram that he, that the Lord, is his shield. Now, this revelation of as God as our shield becomes a rallying cry for significant sons to come. You guys remember? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 33 for one example of this. This is in the case of Moses. But you guys remember the legacy of Shem, don't you? It's Shem and the... Shem and the significant sons, that's right. Among the significant sons of Shem, the called out the elect son, if you will, of Noah, are Abraham, but two others come to mind as well. By example, and they exemplify faith of Abraham based on this revelation. One would be Moses, another would be David. Consider, this is Moses' final blessing and song over the nation of Israel. And as he brings his final word to a close, this in inspired scripture, we find these words of reassurance in verse 28, Deuteronomy 33. So Israel lived in safety, Jacob lived alone, in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens dropped down dew. That's language of great reward according to land promise. Moses is recognizing the reward of land promise made all the way back to Abram, though he didn't own a deed in his hand except for the gravesite for him and his wife, even till the day he died, but his children sure did. And they entered the promised land through the ministry of Moses, and now Moses is recognizing as much. In other words, he is giving thanks for fulfilling the promises, for, fif- for fulfilling promises in his lifetime, Moses' lifetime, that he originally made to his forefather Abram six or eight hundred years earlier. Verse 29, notice these closing words Moses over the people. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. What is Moses recognizing? He's recognizing the legacy of God's revelation to this line of significant sons, all the way back centuries prior to Abraham, the fact that the Lord is the shield of their help and the sword of their triumph. Where was this first revealed? Well, to Abraham in Genesis 15.1. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Abram had experienced the shield protecting him against the kings in this prior battle. He would experience the shield of the Lord protecting him against the temporal factors that would seem to deny him the promises. And the legacy of Abram through Moses and those who entered the promised land would experience the shield of the Lord protecting them from the enemies that surrounded them and giving them great triumph over their enemies and great reward in the land. Fear not, consider grace thus far. I am your shield, says the Lord. Second reference, Psalm 18.1. Don't necessarily need to turn there, but let me just give you this introduction. In my memory... This may be the longest introduction to a psalm. It's the kind of title paragraph, in this case, in Psalm 18. But it is inspired, and it is weighty with truth. Psalm 18.1, here's the introductory title paragraph. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song, 
to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So you see here that metaphors are multiplied, some revealed to Moses, namely rock, some revealed to Abram, namely shield, some revealed in the course of the Psalms, namely horn. The Lord is his fortress, deliverer, rock, shield, stronghold, and proof positive of this is God gave David victory over his enemies, even the anointed king at the time who had gone rogue, Saul, and so forth. So there you have it. The legacy of the significant sons from Abram to Moses to David is recognizing these words all the way back to their forefather, which assured him, do not fear, I am your shield. But not only this, as we consider grace thus far, and by this gain confidence for the future, we need not fear because the Lord is our shield, but he is also our reward. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. His shield, his reward. Abram had received great reward in his recent battle campaign. Do you remember? He had in hand Lot and his family, presumably all the other captives from the Sodom area, and all the spoils of war. Great reward. Of, these, of his resources, Abram tithed to Melchizedek. But he had greater reward still. The king of Salem comes out and he offers a feast of bread and wine. And more than this, a mediatory blessing. Abram is singled out as a significant son. And this prophecy is spoken over him that he is blessed of El Elyon, God Most High, the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High who has demonstrated his favor to his son, in so many words, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this is the reward proclaimed over Abram by this type of Christ, this priest king, Melchizedek. Abram had received great reward, feast and mediatory blessing. Uh, scholars say that it may well be that Abram was the richest man in this area in, the, in ancient times. It could very well be. Think of Abram's the, uh, kind of story of his life thus far. He goes south to Egypt, and he receives all these dowry gifts, and they end up being sort of a despoiling of that realm, and now he has all these incredible flocks. He has so many flocks, he has so many people that he can muster an army of 318 just able-bodied fighting men to go with him on this campaign. He has so many vast flocks and land holdings and herds and so forth that it's too much for he and Lot to dwell in the same area, so Lot has to depart from him, and so forth. And now he's received even more spoils of war, going forth, risking his men, and coming back with everything that four kings could manage to grab and, and take as you know their, their trophies of conquest, the kings of the southern region. Abram is overflowing with flocks and wealth and riches and servants and herds and material gain beyond what you can read. And we don't think of Abraham in this way very often. Why is that the case? Because Abram's desires were not rooted in material wealth, and Abram's 
uh, riches and Abram's uh, legacy was not grounded in, in this particular prosperity. In other words, Abram's eyes were trained to a greater reward still. Nevertheless, all these riches that I just gave you were evidence of grace thus far. If God can grant Abram the spoils of war, can he not also fulfill his covenant by granting him a son? If God could grant him victory and enough to tithe into the kingdom of Melchizedek, probably a greater tithe than that priest had ever seen before, if God can allow Abram that kind of riches, those kinds of spoils and reward, will he not reward him with his promises yet future? Yes, he will. Abram's faith is tested and featured in this context. Thus, the blessings overflowing in Abraham's life serve to remind him, do not fear. God has protected you from your enemies. God has blessed you beyond your peers. Second major point. Abram's faith is tested and featured, not only in the context of grace thus far, but also in the context of time, waiting, and suffering, and this anguish in between. Faith is tested and featured in the context of time and suffering. The book of James, this is a major theme, reminding us that the rest of Scripture testifies to the fact that faith is always featured and strengthened by these means. God ordains trials and waiting periods. God allows His servant to get really old, like a hundred years almost, and his wife and so forth, before He delivers him his son on purpose. Why? Because this is a means in part whereby Abram and Sarai's faith is strengthened. This is the crucible that is fire, purifying fire, to which he throws his servants into from time to time, so that what is of him on the inside, what is of the Lord's work and spirit on the inside, might be purified and shine all the more, namely the gift of faith, namely the legacy of trust, not in oneself, but in the Almighty God. Now, For Abram, this time and suffering took the form of the temporal realm, his finitude, his frailty, his aging body, and the likelihood, the impossibility, in fact, just biologically speaking, that he would have a son by birth in old age. Time and suffering, however, revealed the faithfulness of Abram in due course. And it shaped and strengthened his faith as well. Notice Abram's cry in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram cries out in anguish during this time and suffering element of his calling. He cries out because he is childless. Now, why does he cry this way? Well, The Lord has said, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Abraham cries, but what will you give me, for I am childless. Now, this cry demonstrates Abram's faith. Note, because of Abram's faith, he cries out, because nothing short of a son will be a reward for this man. He can be, as I mentioned, the richest man in the Near East by material wealth. But evidence of Abram's faith is that where his treasure was, his heart was also. Abram did not consider material riches a great reward the way Lot was tempted to do. Abram considered the greatest reward the promises 
of God. The fact that God would give him a son. And so Abram cries out, in spite of being so well off and wealthy, Lord, what will you give me? I have no son. I remain childless. This is evidence of Abram's faith. This begs us to ask the question of our own souls. Is our greatest reward the promises of the gospel? Do we treasure more than any worldly promise, provision, prosperity, wealth, ease, riches, stress-free life, or whatever comfortable reward Sodom this world has to offer? Do we treasure more than that? the assurance that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and the hope of riches eternal in heaven. As Jesus said, the grass withers, the flowers fade through his word, but the word of the Lord stands forever. That will be the testimony of Scripture echoed from Isaiah by the uh, Apostle Peter uh, in next week's sermon. Is our treasure in the things that will truly outlast time? Jesus said in the Gospels that earthly treasure are susceptible to the corrupting influences of moth and rust and thieves which come in and steal and corrode and destroy. But that which is promised to us in the covenant of salvation, it is a great reward that endures forever. But we, saints in this room, are in a time as believers of waiting and suffering. Sharing, as Paul said, in part with the sufferings of Jesus Christ, not realizing the full riches of the promised hope and salvation just yet, but they will be available to us in glory one day. Are they our greatest reward? Do we cry out sometimes for lack of them? Oh Lord, what will you give me? I have yet to have received heaven and then consider his grace thus far and have our faith built that the God who spared us from our enemies, sin and death, by granting us faith in His coming Son, will also give us our great reward of glory one day and the reconstitution of all things to the praise of His great name and that new heavens and new earth. Yes, He will. So like Abram, we can relate because there are aspects of the covenant that are yet future. Yet we are reminded by Abram's experience that time and suffering have a purpose. They point us towards the Lord, they test our heart and faith, and they remind us where our treasure ought to be, or they show where our treasure is. And I pray that it is where Abram found his hope in the covenant promises of salvation. There's a meantime. However, in Abram's experience, that is Interesting. Notice this man, Eleazar of Damascus, sets name. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So Abram has made arrangements in the meantime. He's waited so long for the promise of a son that he has actually, presumably, this is not uncommon at this time. In Roman times, it was common as well. There was a slave that Abram presumably adopted became a member of his household, and then was given the privilege of barring no future biological son, he would be entrusted with the family's name and estate moving forward. This is extremely interesting. Abram says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So in the meantime, not knowing exactly what to do, Abram has given this member of his household, this Damascus or Syrian servant, this privileged position as a placeholder. 
waiting for a son to be born to him. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, the Lord says. Your very own son shall be your heir. So what do we make of Eliezer of Damascus? Well, this is interesting. Now, Abram has a sort of reverse order here. Nevertheless, may I submit that Eliezer of Damascus foreshadows something that will happen in the future. The point being that in the uh, fulfillment of God's promises, there will be adopted sons of other coastland regions. You guys remember the legacy of Japheth? It's Japheth and the coastlands. Yes, and eventually the coastlands will come into the covenant tents of Shem. And so in anticipation, or perhaps foreshadowing this very thing, we have a Syrian slave who's been adopted by Abram and given a privileged place in his household, Eliezer of Damascus. However, the message here is there will be an exclusive son. So there's a foreshadowing of an adopted son of Abraham, but there's also a correction in the order of things. And this comes in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, came to Abram, saying, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Note the order of things. Foreigners like Eleazar will eventually be grafted in, but only via the covenant, covenant which requires the exclusive son. The Lord says to Abram, The covenant will be fulfilled by your very own son. Now in the future, around the time of the Gospels, there had been a languishing time. Time and suffering had its way with Israel as a collective. It had been 400 some years since the voice of a prophet was heard in their midst. And in this famine of the word of the Lord, there was one who began to proclaim, a son will be born. This son was prophesied of old in Isaiah chapter 9. Unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Now in that in-between time, sometimes called the intertestamental period, people were looking for the Messiah, for the Savior. It was a meantime of waiting and suffering. And many Eleazars, if you will, zealot movements and uh, Savior types were seen among the people, but none of them were legit. The lo- history proves this. There is no mere man that holds out hope for the future. I mean, you could even relate this to 2020, which is going to be a crazy election year. You have a number of Democratic can- uh, candidates right now vying for a position of prominence to project hope and assurance, security, and provision for our American future. There are many who are asking for your vote to place your confidence in them to provide a salvation of sorts for hope of our collective future. Well, they are all imposters. They could serve provisionally under the true significant son. But anyone who promises hope outside of the only son, the, the very own son, the significant son, is merely an Eliezer of Damascus, a plan B, a humanistic idea, something lesser, an ad hoc Messiah, something man-made, a makeshift plan, a human solution. But no, the promised Messiah would come through the exclusive Son. Back to John the Baptist. 
The silence of the intertestamental period is broken. And he is pointing to the one, the Lamb of God. And who is this? This is God's very own Son. So hope for the outlying regions of Damascus and Syria. Hope for the people of God waiting for the Messiah would come through the lineage of significant sons. Abram would have his very own son that would carry forward that hope. And his very own son would carry forward the hope all the way until God sends his very own son to fulfill the promises, the reward, and, the, and to be the shield and the reward promised to Abram for all his people. And at such time, you and I, as Eliezer's of Damascus, if you will, will actually be grafted in to the covenant. So there is much significance here. As Abram's faith is tested and featured in the context of grace thus far, in the context of time and suffering, and we'll close this morning recognizing the context of the Word of God. Abram's faith is tested and featured. It is built and it is secured by the Word of God. Notice the means of revelation that we are witnessing once again in our text today. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, came to Abram. This is the assured voice of God himself. This is the secure and authoritative proclamation of truth. Notice 15.1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield. This was preceded by the word of the Lord coming by way of prophecy through the priest king Melchizedek, chapter 14, 19 and 20. Notice chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. So we keep mounting these examples of the word of the Lord as central and featured in the revelation of the covenant. Notice 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. And then 12.1, the introduction of the covenant in the first place. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So you see, this is the means of revelation. The means of truth transferred to Abram. It came by the word of the Lord time and again. Behold the word of the Lord, uh, verse, chapter 15, verse 4. Via vision, chapter 15, verse 1. Via prophecy, 14, 19. The Lord said, 13, 14. The Lord appeared, 12, 7. The Lord again speaks with Abraham in 12, 1. This is a solid ground of assurance that the Lord will be Abram's shield and his great reward granting him his very own son, fulfilling the promises of the covenant, and satisfying the conditions of salvation moving forward. Where do we turn for assurance? Do we turn to any lesser, manufactured, man-made means, idea, concept, philosophy, false messiah, idol, idol factory that turns out a thousand counterfeits? Or do we turn to the word of the Lord? God has spoken. He has spoken through His Scripture. We read today, not just to Abram, but to all of Abram's lineage. And you are Abram's spiritual son 
and daughter if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in this room today. So turn to the Word of God so that your faith might be strengthened and that your faith might be reinforced and as it is reinforced, it might be featured as a testimony to others. How does faith come after all? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, the Scriptures say. Now as the Word of God came, notice in verses 5 through 6 what the Lord instructed Abram to do. He brought him outside and he told him to look at something. Kids, what did God tell Abram to look at? The stars of the sky, and Theo reminds us also the grains of sand, or some translations say the dust of the earth. This is correct. So the Lord had said to Abram in 1316, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And now in reinforcing this analogy, he brings Abram outside in this vision, or perhaps even literally so in verse 5, and he tells him to look toward heaven. This time he says, number the stars. If you are able to number them, and he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I want you to consider the direction of Abram's gaze. The Lord commands Abram once again to lift up his eyes to a sign, if you will, perhaps not the covenant sign, formally speaking, but nevertheless, an amazing object lesson of the certainty of God's promises. Lift your eyes to the stars. Count them. Okay, looks like you lost your place. You got to start all over. You've gotten to 13,578. Now you're overwhelmed at the monumental task. Now, if you can count them, he says, so shall, uh, if you are able to number them, he says, and of course we cannot, so shall your offspring be. In other words, it is unfathomable the scope and the glory of God's promises in the future. To be able to comprehend what God will do through his covenant to his servant, uh, you would sooner be able to count all the stars in the sky or all the particles of dust on the earth. Now this lifting up the eyes direction reminds us of something, does it not? The Lord said to Abram in 1314, after Lot is separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. This is land promise. For all the land that you see, it will give to you and your offspring forever. Lift up your eyes, consider this area, and know that it is promised to you by way of the land aspect of covenant. And here, lift up your eyes in our passage today to the stars of the sky and know the scope of God's plan through his spiritual lineage, which will outnumber these kinds of things and the glories of what he will accomplish. Now, this is to be contrasted with Lot. 13.10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Lot uh, set his eyes to Sodom, which the text tells us in parentheses is soon to be destroyed. Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Lot journeyed east. However, the word of the Lord directs our eyes elsewhere than where Lot or we are tempted to find our hope. The scriptures command us to lift up our eyes to the promises of the Lord to set our gaze upon the things that He has given us as proof positive, as evidence and assurance that He will accomplish His holy will. Now this is significant in light of what has just transpired with Melchizedek as well. El Elyon is the name that Melchizedek gives the Lord. El Elyon, for extra points, does anyone know what that means? What does El Elyon mean? Anyone remember? 
Blessed be God most high, to be translated. Blessed be, or in the Hebrew, blessed be El Elyon. El Elyon means God most high. Now, who is this God that Melchizedek praises and appeals to in his mediatory blessing? He is God most high. He is, in verse 19, possessor of heaven and earth. So consider these two events then back to back. El Elyon, God most high. Abram was surrounded by nations who worshipped the heavenly bodies. They worshipped the very stars they had lifted up his gaze to. Why? Because of their wonder, their mystery, their beauty, and their number. But in this revelation, Abram, considering the words of Melchizedek, and in this vision, realizes that these stars are evidence of the glory, the wonder, the mystery, and the number of what God can do, the possessor of heaven and earth. So as the possessor of heaven and earth draws Abraham's gaze, he uses as an aspect of his glory. Uh, he demonstrates his grandeur and scale of his creative power to assure his servant of the supernatural uh, by directing his gaze towards glory. That is, the possessor of heaven and earth uses this aspect of his creation, namely the stars of the sky, to demonstrate to reveal to Abram the grandeur and scale of his creative power to assure Abram and his lineage of his supernatural power to fulfill his promises. This is El Elyon, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, saying, look at what I can do. And directing Abraham's gaze to lift up his eyes to the number of heavenly bodies whose mystery and wonder and number and brilliance still baffles the mind of even this post-scientific man these days. And as he does so, this by the way of the word of the Lord, he is reassuring his servant that his glories have yet to be revealed and Abram hasn't seen anything yet. And in the future, as the eyes of faith look forward to what God will do, he will see an amazing display of his power to save and power to ransom himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to outnumber the stars in the night sky. The word of the Lord finally appears in this way in Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, El Elyon, if you will, the Lord, Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's righteousness was grounded in his faith. It was his faith the sovereign gift that God had given him to trust in his promises, that the future God had promised was his great reward, the reassurance that the Lord was his shield and would preserve him and his promises until they were fulfilled. This was counted, commended to Abram as his righteousness. Let us close by reading one more passage in Romans chapter 4. The significance of Abram's faith is referenced as a pattern throughout all of Scripture. This is the first time, Genesis 15, where justification and faith are related to one another. In other words, that the revelation that hope for salvation is not in our works that we could boast, but in trust in another who will accomplish the terms. And the Scriptures only go on to expound this Romans 4.1, for instance, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him 
as righteousness. Towards the end of the chapter, we pick up in verse 19. Speaking of Abraham, further, Paul says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. These words that we're reading in Genesis 15, 6, he, Abram, believed the Lord and he, Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. Paul says, we're not written only for Abram's sake, Abraham's sake. They were written for our sake as well. So as we lift up our eyes beyond just the lands that were a type of the fulfillment of a glorious inheritance to come, as we lift up our eyes even beyond the stars of the sky, which illustrate God's power to ransom uh, him for Himself a people, we lift up our eyes to our resurrected, resurrected Savior and Lord. We lift up our eyes to the one who, like the serpent in the wilderness, was crucified on our behalf. We lift up our eyes to Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And as we direct our attention to that assurance and that hope, to that significant Son, the Lord, the Father's only Son, His very Son indeed, the exclusive One who can save us, that is the kind of faith that is counted to us as our justification, if you will. It is the object of our hope that secures our future, fulfills the promises of old, and holds out hope for eternity. So lift your eyes to Jesus. This was the message to Abraham and through Abraham to all his spiritual lineage. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the message of hope in the gospel. We thank you for the message of hope and salvation. We thank you that Jesus your very own Son, has come to secure for us these things. We thank you, Lord, as we look to Him who is able in His body and blood to wash away our sins and to secure for us eternal hope in the future, that we, Lord Jesus, have hope eternal. I pray that you would reinforce these things and strengthen our confidence in them as we have turned to your Word this day, all the way from the days of Abram through to the testimony of the apostles. I pray that we would find ourselves responding to this message in faith and in worship, recognizing that Christ is our Lord and Savior. For those who lie outside the covenant, Father, in the preaching of this word, as it hits their ears, I pray that you would use it, Lord Jesus, to grant unto them the supernatural gift of faith, that they might turn from their sins and turn to Jesus Christ that they would set their eyes on their hope of salvation and repent of any lesser gods. I thank you, Lord, for giving us such great hope and encouragement, and I pray that you would cause this message to work out its fruit and endurance through our own time of suffering, 
Remind us of your grace toward us thus far, and always may we return to your holy word, which which grants sufficient means for our endurance, perseverance moving forward. To the equipping of your church, to the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.